And the disciples of John and of the Pharisees used to fast, and they come and say unto him, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but thy disciples fast not? And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then shall they fast in those days. No man also soweth a piece of new cloth on an old garment, else a new piece that fill it up taketh away from the old, and the rent is made worse. And no man putteth new wine into old bottles, else the new wine doth burst the bottles, and the wine be spilled, and the bottles will be marred. But new wine must be put into new bottles. I'll let you end to the uh, strange and weird world of uh, pastoral sermon writing. Uh, every week I write the sermon and then show up on uh, Sunday morning and take a look at it to make sure I know what I'm going to be talking about which I think is an appropriate thing to do. And this morning, as I looked at the introduction, I said that was stupid. And so now it is on the back page of my sermon notes in case anyone wanted to know what folly I was about to say. It's not folly. It just, I went on a bit of a rant and I thought, well, that doesn't really fit. Uh, It was tangentially applied to the topic of this sermon, but I decided it needed to be jettisoned. But the topic of this sermon is about fasting, and it's a fascinating idea for us in the church because the church itself has repeatedly wrestled with the appropriate place for fasting in the Christian life. Should we practice a habit of regular fasting? When is it appropriate for the Christian to fast? Is it appropriate that a Christian should fast at all? This issue uh, may seem to deal with only discipline, but every discipline ought to have a profound theological significance. You might think that this is a matter of practice. You might or might not fast as you will. But every discipline, everything we add to the Christian life, should have a profound theological reason. Else why would we ever do it? In this section of his Gospel, Mark tells the stories that put Jesus into conflict with the religious leaders and the expectations of his day. In this story, Jesus faces the implicit charge that his teaching is out of step with the perceived spiritual state of the nation. And while the question does not directly bring this complaint, the comparison puts Jesus in the minority. Jesus responds with three parables to describe the true spiritual state and to indicate the necessary changes to the perception of the people. We discover in this passage the topic of fasting in its historic practice, its contemporary parable, and its new prescription. Its historic practice, its contemporary parable, and its new prescription. To begin with, we have to understand what this whole passage teaches us about the issue of fasting. We need to consider what the practice meant in the first century. This explains the question that arises that contrasts the expected way of the devout with the new way that Jesus is bringing into existence. Mark begins with setting out the practices of two religious schools in first century Israel. Look at verse 18. And the disciples of John and of the Pharisees used to fast. 
Now, the Pharisees themselves didn't have disciples as a religious school. And John probably would not have recognized a distinct band of people he had called, but obviously some followed after John the Baptist and were even described as his disciples in the Gospels. And so this uh, language fits. The Pharisees probably didn't have a uh, creedal formula the way we think of them. And yet, uh, as a group, we can discern them as uh, spiritually distinct, as uh, those who shared a view of Scripture. We might um, draw a comparison to Calvinists and Arminians or the Reformed community and those outside the Reformed community in our evangelical society. And while neither group would define themselves by the names of uh, the men uh, or that, that have become their titles, we can recognize the distinction that separates their way of thinking, and so also the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The former, the Pharisees, accepted the entirety of what we know of as the Old Testament. They believed in angels and the resurrection and lived strictly by the law. The Pharisees only accepted uh, the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. They didn't believe in angels or the resurrections, and they felt free to collaborate with the Romans to the extent of increasing their political power. And so Jesus finds himself more closely aligned with the Pharisaical school than with the Sadducee school. The practice of fasting among the Pharisees and the followers of John somewhat defies our comprehension. For the Pharisees and the disciples of John didn't have a lot in common other than their interest in purity. The only time that the law itself of the Old Testament required fasting was on the Day of Atonement. And it, this is not the object of the fasting that is mentioned here, because it was required of all, all of Israel. And so the fasting of the Pharisees and disciples of John is somewhat distinct from the, the fasting required of all Israel. And so what was this fasting? We have evidence of the Pharisaical practice of fasting twice a week. You can read about this in Luke 18:12, as the, uh, the prayers of the Pharisee and the publican are mentioned in Jesus' parable. The Pharisee uh, brags about him fa himself fasting twice a week. And, but we know less about uh, the fasting of John and his followers. Even less do we know uh, the purpose of fasting. The fast for the Day of Atonement, we know why it comes to be. It is the affliction of soul before God over sin as evidence of repentance. And you can read about this in Leviticus 23. And so, why did these two groups fast? Were the Pharisees fasting because they imagined that they needed uh, ever always consistent reminding about their sins? Did they view their fasting as expiation for their transgressions, a, a merit against their wrongs? Did, Jesus, did John and his disciples see their fasting as preparatory for the coming of the Messiah? Did they see it as evidence of their prayers of longing for his coming and pleading for the Lord for his advent? Mark does not tell us exactly why uh, these groups fasted. He also doesn't clearly tell us who is asking this question in verse 18. And they come to and say unto him, Why do the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast, but thy disciples fast not? While it is tempting to read the pronoun, they came and said, 
the, the pronoun they, according to the antecedent of the disciples of the Pharisees and of John, it really doesn't work unless you hear them asking the question in the third person. If it is the, the disciples of John and the Pharisees asking the question, why are they, do they describe themselves uh, instead of the disciples of John? Why would they say, they would probably say, why do we fast and your disciples don't? And so uh, there is a sense in which someone unknown is asking this question. And it comes from the minds of many. We see the plural used here. This wasn't an individual asking this question. This was a question that was on the minds of several. And for this reason, it doesn't sound like an accusatory question, but one of curiosity. Someone is looking out, out at the uh, variety of religious experience, the variety of conservative Orthodox uh, religious Jewish worship, and they're saying, hey, one of these things is not like the other. Why are you different, Jesus, from the normal practice that we have identified as orthodox in the work of the, uh, the disciples of John and the Pharisees? And this is where the conflict comes. It's outside the question. The question itself isn't the conflict. The conflict is what is going on in the environment. The distinction between the practice of Jesus and that of the Pharisees and John. And in, for in combining the practice of the Pharisees and John, those asking the question see them as the paragons of righteous, lawful living. They have set the standard. The Pharisees were known as being those who were very specific, very interested in keeping all the law of God, seeking to devote their lives to holiness. They and the disciples of John represent the best in spiritual development and practice. They represent themselves. They have appeared to the people as those worthy of emulation. And for Jesus to depart from this practice borders on compromised morals. Why are you compromising? Why aren't you giving yourselves to holiness like the disciples of John and the Pharisees? To the, to the eyes of the questioners, Jesus represented something new. He advocated a new practice in Israel. Even with their training in the history of their people, they didn't recognize the truth that something new may be actually something old that is being recovered. To their mind, fasting was an integral part of the spiritual life. They cannot imagine a world without it. To them, righteous living demanded fasting and Frequency of fasting represented one's devotion to the Lord. And Jesus comes without fasting. We may put the, Mark may have put this story immediately after the story about Jesus feasting in order to emphasize the contrast. But Jesus isn't bringing novelty into the worship of the Lord. Instead, he represents something forgotten that is being brought to the forefront, something proclaiming the nature of his person and work. See, to the people of God, holiness and drawing near included fasting. But in the Old Testament, drawing near to the Lord often, more often than not, included feasting. Three times a year, 
Every male Israelite was supposed to present themselves before the tabernacle, and every one is called a feast. Again, the only time that Israel was to fast was on the Day of Atonement. We grow we, Christians grow weary, weary of what is new and novel. Often the term progressive we see as a facade for sin. But not everything unfamiliar is progressive. Sometimes what is unfamiliar to us is really a recovering of the ancient wisdom and truth of Scripture. I often become alarmed when people tell me that I've said something they've never heard before. And I quickly tell them that what I am trying to tell them is nothing new or the product of my ingenuity, whatever you may think that is. Rather, I only preach the Scripture and apply the Scripture. And often I feel that the Bible only sounds new because we are profoundly unfamiliar with it. Have we ever thought about how embarrassing it should be to us as believers when we say, I never saw that in Scripture before? When we find the ancient teaching of the Bible to be something new and novel. We see the historic practice of fasting, but secondly, I want us to see its contemporary parable. Jesus answered the question that is brought to him with a parable describing his contemporary situation. He uses the analogy of a wedding. And we see here the, the idea of presence at the wedding and absence. Jesus' parable uses a very simple principle. Look at verse 19. And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. It's a very simple idea. Fasting is absolutely inappropriate while the bridegroom is present at the wedding. In Jesus' times, weddings involved a protracted period of time extending over days. We remember that in John chapter 2, the, the miracle at the wedding of Cana, uh, we often you know, contract it to one of our own weddings and think, how could they run out of wine after so short a time? Well, it may not have been that short of a time. It may have been a couple days when they wet, ran out of wine. And Jesus makes water out of the wine, out of wine, as you know. And so these weddings took days to go on. And during the wedding, your diet doesn't matter. If you go to a wedding and start refusing food, people are going to look at you askance. Because you're not at a wedding about you and your healthy body image. You are at the wedding to cheer the bride and groom. That's what you're there for. You are there because uh, the bride and groom want you to fill their wedding hall with joy and laughter. A wedding is a time for feasting, not fasting. And this is Jesus' point in verse 19. And he obviously uses this parable to refer to himself. He is the bridegroom of the story. This is the wedding. He is there at the wedding. And the people, the children, the members who have been brought into the bride chamber to the wedding, they ought not to fast while the, there is feasting going on. But there's a problem with this image because 
The Messiah never appears in the Old Testament in this uh, kind of phrase. He's never mentioned as uh, the bridegroom. It doesn't fit with any messianic uh, expectation. So how does this fit with the promise of Jesus' person and work? Well, while the idea of the bridegroom may not appear in the context of the Messiah, the idea of marriage and the analogy of marriage certainly does appear in the Old Testament, specifically in reference to the relationship between the Lord and his people. And whether the audience recognizes it or not, Jesus is making a very bold statement. He is portraying himself as the divine bridegroom remarrying his people, reestablishing the covenant, probably even with reference to the new covenant from Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. He is displaying himself, he is portraying himself as the divine bridegroom who has come down to remarry his wayward people. This is the wedding feast. This is the bridegroom with his bride. How can we fast when such a momentous, great thing is going on? Would not that practice be absolutely inappropriate in this wonderful event that is taking place? And yet Jesus warns that this state of affairs will not last. Look at verse 20. The days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, And then they shall fast in those days. To Mark's Roman Gentile readers, they would have understood the point of the story. To them, it would be really simple. Jesus is the bridegroom. He is with his people. It's inappropriate for them to fast. But they would also recognize the somber reality, the grim truth of his impending death that would be a cause for his disciples fasting. For us who understand the Old Testament, we hear something a bit more sober and a lot more joyous. Many speculate about the time to which Jesus refers. What time is it that they will fast? The one constant includes the crucifixion until the resurrection. The time when Jesus is taken away from his disciples. And as we think about this event as the day of fasting, it takes on a more significant idea than merely the death of a beloved religious leaders at the hands of Gentiles being falsely accused. It should remind us about the only legal requirement for fasting in the Old Testament. It takes us back to the Day of Atonement. The day upon which the high priest would enter into the presence of God with the blood of the sacrifice to atone for the sins of all God's people. It is not for nothing that the author of Hebrews specifically identifies this event as being that which Jesus did in his cross work. For on that dark day the Son of God died for the sins of his people. On that day his blood forever blotted out the record of their sins. On that day, it was right for the people to fast because that was the day of atonement personified and completed and perfected. This truth would so affect the church that Good Friday and for some every Friday would become a day of fasting. And yet this practice of fasting seems to ignore the reality of the resurrection. 
After all, the one sacrifice of that one day of atonement is never repeated. That's the point of the author of Hebrews. He entered once for all into the Holy Holies with blood for sin to completely eradicate sin. As the Day of Atonement on the cross ended the final sacrifice, the legally required day of fasting ended also. While the bridegroom was taken away from his disciples for a time, he returned on the first day of the week. And he ascended into heaven so that his spirit might remain with his people always. The question that we have to ask when we think about this verse in connection with fasting and our practice of it is the question, Did is the bridegroom with his church or not? Robert Stein, in his commentary on Mark, heads this section of his commentary by the heading, Jesus and fasting do not mix. He's kind of blunt that way in his conclusion. He writes, one should, not, one should note that the early church did not think of Jesus as being away. They lived not in the sorrow of their Lord's absence, but in the joy of his abiding presence. In the New Testament, after the resurrection of Christ, we see fasting practiced by the church not in the affliction of souls, but as an aid to prayer. And really, if you think about it, the church itself, fasting, uh, only appears in the sending of Paul on the first missionary journey. There is a place uh, for fasting in the church, but it ought to reflect our theology. In our Book of Church Order, it recommends fasting and prayer before the ordination service of a minister in light of what Acts 13 describes in the sending of Paul. And even so, it does not mandate that practice. Because we recognize that the present era involves the joy of Christ's person and work and presence. Fasting generally has little place in such a time. Yes, we continue to experience the misery of sin in a broken world. We may choose to fast in times of great sorrow or tragedy or the recognition of serious sins, but these times are occasional. We live in the tension between the already and not yet, but the New Testament emphasizes the implications of the already, the kingdom that Jesus has inaugurated. The New Testament does not emphasize that Christ is absent, they emphasize that Christ is present, and they give us hope of his return. As a Christian discipline, fasting has a purpose. Those who need to learn self-control and discipline may benefit from regular fasting, if not from food, then from other pleasures. Such disciplines may serve to reveal individual idols and help break our attachment to them. All these, all these matters are ones that you ought to consider before your walk before the Lord. As Paul writes, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Fasting in these areas may break our uh, slavery to them. For Christian history is littered with the devastation wrought by legal activities that God's people have let control them. And so the practice of fasting may aid to prevent such slavery. And yet even this fasting 
has a feasting purpose. I want us to think about this, that all of our fasts are actually an aid of a feast. We fast in order to feast on that which truly satisfies. Or to put it a different way, in more you know, gritty, meaty terms, you have to stop eating the hamburger in order for you to enjoy the filet mignon. Now, your taste may vary, uh, but you get what I'm saying. You have to stop eating the lesser in order for you to start eating the greater. And that's what a fast signifies. You fast from what cannot satisfy so that you can feast on what does. And our present feasts must reflect the presence of the bridegroom or they become spiritually barren. You can feast in a way that's actually a fast. If we do not eat and drink in the presence of the Lord, we might as well not be eating or drinking. For we are spiritually starving one another. Everything that we enjoy in this life, we only are able to enjoy to the fullest when we recognize who has given it to us. For the joy of every blessing, every blight, every sip comes from the presence of the good God who sanctifies the good things to us as his people. If we do not recognize that every blessing comes from the hand of our Heavenly Father who is showing his love to us by them, then the food and the drink become ashes in our mouths. We see fasting in its historic practice, in its contemporary parable, and finally I want to see it in its new prescription. Most of what seems new to us comes from applications of old truths to new places. It is in this vein that we find Jesus calling us to radical change, and he uses two examples, that of a garment and of wineskins. Jesus perhaps uses well-known proverbs in his day to convey a rather complex thought. Look at verse 21. No man also soweth a piece of new cloth on an old garment, else the new piece that filleth it up taketh away from the old, and the rent is made worse. Whoever has laundered natural fiber clothes knows the principle of this proverb. Cloth made from natural fiber shrinks when it comes in contact uh, with water, and your uh, some may shrink less than others, but this principle commonly takes place, and it is the reality upon which uh, Jesus is making this parable. And so he's saying only a fool tries to repair an old garment with an unlaundered, unshrunk piece of cloth. The proverb stands, the pat- patch will shrink and deform or tear the old garment, uh, making it worse than before. You cannot fix the problem of an old garment with a patch of new cloth. This principle amplifies with the next proverb. Look at verse 22. No man putteth new wine into old bottles, else the new wine doth burst the bottles, and the wine is spilled, but and the bottles will be marred, but new wine must be put into new bottles. At first, this sounds like another example of the principle of the pr- previous proverb. Adding something new to something old doesn't work. It will ruin the old. But here we see uh, something new. The old ruins the new here as the new wine is also ruined. 
by the inability of the old wineskins to hold it. We might see in these Proverbs two balanced thoughts, that the new cannot fix the old, and the old cannot preserve the new. And this ends with the last clause, that new wine needs new wineskins. You can't patch or use or add old and new together. You have to, something has to be completely new. My friend, as, temp- as tempting as it might be to add a little Jesus, a dash to Christianity to your life to make it better, to make it complete, it won't work. You may find a tear in your life and assume that a patch of Jesus can make it better, but it won't work. Jesus tells those asking him about fasting that only a complete reappraisal of their view of religion and spirituality will explain the truth. That new view begins with the sobering reality of sin, that we are all guilty, that we all deserve death and hell, that we can do nothing to change ourselves. We don't need a repair to the garment of our lives. We need completely new clothes. We don't need new wine added to our lives. We need a new life. We need a complete change. Jesus came to do just that. He is God made man to change the very nature of his people. He lived for them. He died for them. He rose from the grave to prove that new life he can offer because of his own life and death. He offers all he is and all he did to you. Do you believe that what Jesus did, he did for you? Will you turn from your sin and follow Christ? Christian, a little Jesus just makes things worse. Everything about us must change. All our expectations need to be sanctified. Every part of our worldview must be seen in Christ. Until we understand and accept that every part of our nature must change into the image of Christ, we will remain dysfunctional believers. That dysfunction often occurs uh, in deflecting blame. After all, I could say that my anger is the fault of my dog, that my lack of patience is really Connie's fault. If she would just get in line, everything would be better. Now, I hope that sounds rather ridiculous to you. But as ridiculous as it sounds to you, that is exactly how we sound to God when we blame our sin on others. I gossiped because I was around someone else. I lusted because of what she did or what he did. I lacked patience because of them. Yes, others' actions may tempt us, but our yielding is all of us. And others often reveal to us the sin we prefer to hide. But that reveals to us how bad, how much of us still needs to change. Until we see how torn our garment of life, we will continue to try to patch it with Jesus. When we see our garment as shredded and soiled rags, it will cause us to toss it off that we may put on Jesus alone. Until we see how busted our souls are, we will continue to try to fill them with the wine of life. 
Only when we can see their complete ruin will we cast them aside for the blood of the Savior. Let us pray together. Our Lord, forgive our pride when we think ourselves good people instead of broken people. We praise you that in Christ you have restored much of our souls. But help us to see how much more work must be done in us. Fill our hearts with thanksgiving at the memory of your grace. May we receive your blessings with joy, acknowledging the great giver of every good gift. How high do we imagine we understand your word? Continue to teach us as we humble our minds before your spirit. Shine your grace upon us as your people. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.